Community radio is your antidote to social isolation. Stay connected and listen to 3CR. 855 AM, 3CR digital and streaming and podcasting online at 3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second and fourth Friday of each month on The Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value.
Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. It's the fourth Friday of the month, the 25th of September. Hi, Anne. Oh, hey, Kevin. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing okay. We opened with Know Your Product by The Saints, the Australian band The Saints, and this week we're interviewing one of the members from The Saints, Mr Edmund Cooper. How are you, Ed? Uh, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Not too bad. Hey, so tell us about that song, uh, Know Your Product. Where did it come from? Oh, it was just a sort of a a last-minute addition to the second Saints album. We'd, we'd recorded the bulk of it and uh, took a break, and I thought the album was really good. It just didn't quite feel complete, and um, it was just sort of a just one of those fluky bits of inspiration. I'd heard this song by Clarence Carter, a soul singer, R&B singer, on a, a compilation album that I'd bought when I was living in London, and it was a song called Looking for a Fox or Looking for the Fox. I don't remember the exact title, but the thing that struck me about it was that horn arrangement was really similar to Sam and Dave's Hold On, I'm Coming. And, you know, I, I loved that era of, of the, well, that song in particular, that was the song that sort of made me as a a kid that wasn't all that keen on horn arrangements or horn sections or brass, you know, any of that kind of thing, made me a really sort of hardcore fan. And so it was just basically a desire to try and capture some of that energy, some of that kind of atmosphere, some of that, you know, soul, whatever you want to call it. Plus I had a song title. I didn't have lyrics. I had the title and I had the horn line. And then it just came together in a really quick uh, period of time. I've heard you uh, mention before that that was the first horn arrangement that you'd done for uh, anything, um, and it's a uh, seems to work rather well. Mm. Yeah, well, it's it's fairly simple sort of thing, so it didn't take that much work, you know. It uh, c- certainly gives us some edge, you know. Um, it just it just brings everything to a whole new level. But look, what we want to speak to you about uh, this week, Ed, is, um, you know, this show is called Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Uh, there's a lot of disruption to people's working lives at the moment. You've been a full-time musician for over 40 years now. You started back in the mid-70s. So I'm interested to find out how you fell into this and what your what your working life has been for the last 45 years or so. Um, how did I fall into it? I, I, I just didn't want to do anything else, really. You know, I wanted to avoid... A regular job if I possibly could and uh, I've succeeded for the bulk of that time you know I mean it's not it's, I'm not saying it's easy there have been sort of periods of time where I have taken on some other occupation just to keep the bills paid sort of thing but for the most part I've managed to do it what other non non music um, uh, orientated jobs have you done? Have you, have you ever had a regular job? Oh come on, of course, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, my my first job was working at um, Hutton's Meatworks, which was an abattoir. I used to work there in the school holidays. Then, when I quit school, the first job I had was as as a sort of a storeman uh, lower kind of clerical position at Astor Records in Brisbane. I did that for about um, two years. That was sort of around the time when the Saints got started. I mean, we we weren't making money when we started, so I had to have a job. Did a little bit of labouring, digging up footpaths for the uh, Brisbane City Council. What else did I do? I worked at the public service for about six months. That was quite good. What were you doing at the public service? Working for the... Uh, 
the uh, Department of Aboriginal Affairs, the Commonwealth Department, as opposed to the Queensland State Department at that stage, which was the Department of Aboriginal and Islander Affairs. So that was something that that, uh, was set up when um, Whitlam became PM. But I worked there for about six months and then basically that, that coincided with the Saints recording the first single and me sending out those copies and then suddenly there was sort of interest in what we were doing and so I quit that and uh, basically after that point sort of became pretty much full-time working as a musician with the occasional sort of doing a little bit of you know part-time either clerical or whatever whatever didn't sort of involve a great deal of commitment from me. You see this particularly in the arts and the entertainment. Uh, a lot of people are pushed into work these days, especially far more these days, um, by the mutual obligation aspect of, of being unemployed, that um, if you are suited to something in the arts like a musician or whatever it might be, uh, quite often you're herded away from that because you're expected to pull in a regular job, which means you've got no time for the uh, creative aspect. Um, because it's not regarded uh, as seriously as a regular nine-to-fiver, uh, and that's that's detrimental to the arts. And, and I guess what we're trying to establish with this this conversation is how important the arts are and how it needs to be supported, not not regarded as something which is done in your spare time. Had you been forced into full-time clerical work uh, back in the seventies, uh, and the band never took off. There's 45 years of great music that would have just not not happened. It, it's it's a really really difficult uh, area to kind of argue. I mean, in, in my case, I guess it's sort of it's relatively easy. I mean, I haven't I haven't been unemployed since I started, kind of thing. So I don't I don't have any real concept of um, mutual obligation or anything like that, you know. But in terms of in terms of sort of measuring the importance of the arts it, it, it is a difficult thing to get through and I doubt if anyone in the well certainly nobody in the government and I, I'm highly skeptical that anyone in the opposition could actually put together some way of how, how to actually value the arts I suppose I mean the only thing they have to go on is if something's been really successful they they're not capable of aesthetic judgments and you probably wouldn't want them to be either. The only thing that I've seen uh, which is obviously uh, down that, that 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 would illustrate this is that uh, George Brandis started this series of cuts to arts funding uh, a number of years ago when he was the arts minister and if you, you could have had a worse pick of arts minister I don't know it. Um, but he basically defined arts as the high arts, which means you had to have an orchestra, you had to have a concert hall, and anything else was uh, was just something on the side, you know. Uh, and we've seen a, a gradual deterioration in arts funding ever since then. And I guess if you look at um, countries that value the arts, you see a, a much richer fabric of society. But, of course, you also get a flow-on effect through to the retail sector, uh, a vibrant arts sector attracts people to restaurants, to accommodation, and it's good for the whole economy. So that keeps the bean counters happy. So I think there's a very valid economic reason for governments to become involved in supporting the arts. Uh, and it's, you'd have to say, especially now, uh, when there's uh, a complete reset 
at the industry? I think they've done a, a sort of a, a probably not as extensively as in Victoria, but they've done some, or they're starting to sort of look at something similar in Queensland. It'll probably be state driven, any of these kind of changes, especially when you have an ultra sort of conservative federal government. Uh, Brisbane's getting a a good reputation for live music these days. We seem to have skipped Sydney in between um, and Melbourne and Brisbane Brisbane seem to be the the live music scenes that are happening at the moment, which is kind of interesting. Sydney's just been sort of adversely affected by... um, property prices in the inner city. I mean, I know Melbourne is pretty pricey as well, but, you know, there's that and, and the the way the, the venues have, have found it more profitable to run poker machines and that kind of thing. I mean, that that's sort of a, a little bit of a battle here, but um, I think it, Sydney is the worst affected for that. Sydney used to have a fantastic live scene. That's a really interesting point that you're making, Ed, because I was just thinking as you guys are talking about what are the ingredients that, you know, will go into making a really vibrant music scene. And you're pointing out like real estate values. So there are all these sort of indirect big economic trends that can feed into that. So I was thinking even what is it that makes uh, for a, a great scene with having lots of venues, like lots of pubs and so on? And, of course, real estate values is part of that. It it really is. I mean, when, when Sydney was at its, um, I think probably at its live music high point, which would have been late 70s through the 80s, um, a lot of the inner city suburbs were still cheaper than living in the outer suburbs in some ways. There were a lot of squats. There, it, it was just a completely different sort of mood and a lot of younger people who tend to frequent and and support live music more than older people do uh, live there. And that, that sounds like the kind of environment uh, that your first well-known band, The Saints, uh, originated in. Um, you left The Saints in the late 1970s and then formed your next musical outfit, which was The Laughing Clowns, one of my favourite outfits that you've been involved with. Uh, and I got a chance to see the Laughing Clowns reform and play for the 2009 Melbourne International Jazz Festival at the Forum Theatre. Can you uh, tell us a bit about that lineup? Okay, yeah. Well, there was Jeffrey. He was um, the original drummer. He was he was sort of in every lineup of the Clowns. Um, we had Louise Elliott on saxophone. Lou had. Um, she recorded on most of the... She wasn't the first saxophonist in the band. That was a guy called uh, Bob Farrell. Um, he played on the first couple of records, but Lou, Louise played on on um, on most of the uh, clown stuff. We had um, Les Miller, who played uh, upright bass. He, he was sort of like a mid, mid-era bass player for the original band. We had a few lineup changes. Uh, he, he was an amazing bass player. I've got to say, at that show, I was just sitting there with my jaw on the, mm. on the floor watching him play bass. He was... Uh, yeah, he, he, um, yeah he, he, um, he, he... He was a great bass player. I, 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 I believe he's unfortunately sort of uh, experiencing some problem with his hands at the moment, which is kind of uh, meant he's had to have a bit of a change. But yeah, he, 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 was, he was terrific. Um, and we had on keyboard uh, a, a 
a new fellow, Alistair Spence, who I've worked with uh, over the years. Uh, he's, he's quite a sort of a renowned jazz pianist in his own right, and I've actually recently recorded a, an album which hasn't been released yet with his um, trio, which is uh, actually really, really good. Um, and I'm surprised because we did it very quickly and uh, I didn't hear anything about it for about six months or so and then he sent me the um, mixes and it sounds fantastic, just really quite uh, pleasing. Um, so yeah, that, it, was, it was essentially, I mean, with the exception of Al, it, Alistair, it was, all, it was all original members and but the way that we approached it, the way that I wanted to particularly look at it was not to uh, play the old material in uh, an absolutely sort of purest way. We, we approached the whole thing as if the band hadn't broken up and we'd just kind of changed as time went on, which is, you know, what the band did back in the day and which is what everyone sort of does. And I think it worked really, really well. There was only one new material, one new uh, tune in the set, but um, everything had kind of just sort of changed as if, you know, we had been an ongoing living act rather than
You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. There's plenty of specialist music programs to choose from on the 3CR grid. Explore the 3CR schedule online at 3cr.org.au. Yes, this is our vibration. Check out Music Sans Frontier. Great voices. Music Matters. The Hip Sister Hop Show. The Heavy Session. The Planet X Radio Show. Satellite Skies. Shindig. Sweet Dreams. Tune in to 3CR 855 AM on your digital radio or streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Let our music make you happy. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Before those station announcements, we heard Eternally Yours by The Laughing Clowns, which is the second main musical incantation of this week's guest, Mr Edmund Cooper. So, Ed, we're talking about your uh, life as a musician in terms of work and, and how that um, how that compares to, to normal people who have regular nine-to-fives. When you're working as a musician... It's a bit of a roller coaster. It's it's up and down. There's there's always peaks and troughs. Sometimes things are flying off the handle, and other times they're dead in the water. Is there any sort of consistency to the work pattern uh, that you have as a as a musician over the last number of decades? No, you 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 can have have periods of time where where you're quite busy, but I think it's difficult to plan more than about six months in advance. I mean, the funny thing with the, the kind of course that I've taken is that it seems that, you know, that it's starting to affect a lot of people in a lot of far more sort of mainstream occupations. Uh, is this sort of the, you know, the casualization of the workforce, I guess, as part of, you know, you can see it in, in, in the universities. And to, to say that, you know, I, I launched into my career with any sort of great certainty would be inflating the reality. As I think I mentioned earlier, I did have a job in the public service and I'd probably be running the joint by now if I had stayed. <laughs> you know, that, that would have been a fairly safe kind of thing to do. And I didn't want to do it, you know. I, I kind of found that it was boring and so I went along doing what I wanted to do and just kept doing it. And occasionally you kind of get periods where work gets really thin on the ground. But a lot of it, it you, you have to sort of make make the work yourself. You know, I don't think there's actually anybody out there that would be sort of calling me up saying, oh, we really want you to write a song. It doesn't have, well, you know, occasionally I've been employed to, you know, do a soundtrack or something like that. But you know what I mean? It's like... You've got to self-promote to a large degree and uh, create product exactly. and get it out there. Exactly. And, you know, if, if, if you lack those skills, which I largely do, I'm not a particularly good self-promoter. That makes things harder. People that are 
able to promote themselves are at an advantage there. One of the characteristics of your whole career, Ed, is that uh, the mainstream fame seems to have slipped you by. You've always been someone who's uh, on the fringes. Uh, for disclosure, I, um, I'm Ed's lighting guy. I've worked with him for quite some time. But I remember when we were uh, doing The Yard Goes On Forever back in the late 1980s, uh, I'd bring friends along to see the band and they didn't know who you were. And when they've come out of the gig at the other end, they go, why is this guy not incredibly famous? And it's it's kind of like, because I love the gig. They thought the song was fantastic. The, the, everything was just, just brilliant. And they're going, how come we've never heard of Ed Cooper before? So many people in Australia who listen to mainstream music uh, have never heard of you, which I find uh, kind of amazing. Well, I guess I'm not really that mainstream. I think I, I don't particularly think that I'm, I operate in some sort of weird esoteric outer either. But I've done things independently, for better or worse, a lot of that time. Um, I, you know, also have to confess that I, I largely loathe the industry. <laughs> so it's it, you know, I I, I just don't particularly, I, you know, I love music. I love playing. I don't like travelling particularly, um, but I also don't overly like the industry. So it it puts me at odds, you know. Yeah, it's um it's tricky because you've got a very loyal fan base. My housemate Pete used to work as a travelling uh, wine salesman, and he was over in Europe, in Antwerp in two thousand and one, and he's walked into a little record store, and there's a the, almost the entire record store was. Uh, taken over by Ed Cooper and the Saints. He said he walked in, it was like a shrine uh, to, to Ed Cooper and the Saints in, in Antwerp, which he just wasn't expecting. My, my kind of story. Yeah. <laughs> so so you, you have all these pockets of, uh, of dedicated fans who uh, absolutely love what you do, but um, it's a very tumultuous... Like back in the 80s when we were working, we were doing uh, four or five, six gigs a week. It was constantly just driving gig, driving gig, driving gig, and that was mm. the 80s and into the 90s, I guess, a bit. But now it's changed and... Uh, you have to place yourself a little more carefully, and it's. It used to be that the recorded product was was worth more than the, the than the live product, and then that swings around back the other way. It's it's this constantly shifting dynamic, which is hard to manage, I guess. We are just drowning in recorded information of one kind or the other. You know, there's just so much stuff around that it can't compete in some ways with the reality of being in a room, being able to see it once, hear it once kind of thing. I think there's a value in that, actually. It's sort of like going back to early 20th century or late 19th century, you know, before recording became as important as it has done. People do live streams, for instance, and then they leave them up, and so they're just there. But then if you do a live stream and you leave it up for anyone to kind of wander in and out, that to me defeats the purpose of that sort of thing. I think one of the other things that I also try to do with live performance is to sort of make each show, you know, a little bit different to the one that I played the week before kind of thing. So on the one hand, it's difficult to make money from recorded music because there's an oversupply. Uh, on the other hand, we've now got restrictions due to COVID so that you can't perform live, which means it's hard to earn an income from live performance. It must be very difficult to fit into a normal world where people pay rent, raise families, pay mortgages, etc. How hard is it to survive in a regular world uh, as a musician? Yeah, I mean, you want to be wary 
taking out big mortgages, that kind of thing, that's for sure. I mean, I made that mistake once in, when I was younger and uh, regretted it substantially. <laughs> um, I guess it's why there are relatively so few full-time musicians around the place. I mean, it really isn't It isn't what you want to do, what, what you want to get into if you want sort of any kind of uh, regular income. Earnings can be, be be phenomenal when when things are really successful. But the other thing that doesn't sort of really get addressed in this all that much is that a lot of people might have a successful record, but the the kind of deal that they've struck with a record label, for instance, to achieve that successful record may actually mean that very little of the profit actually goes back to the artist. Most costs are kind of uh, recoupable against the artist royalty. So, you know, if you make, say, 10 bucks on a record, that has to go back to, um, you know, paying off the recording or something. And at the end of it, oftentimes, the uh, you've paid it off and the label still owns the recording kind of thing. So, you know, it, having a successful record is great. It can facilitate successful live performance. Not necessarily. I think, you know, you, you were talking about that time in the 80s. There were tons of bands that had uh, hit records that ended up losing money on touring, if you can believe it, you know. You you saw the the numbers that would attend those suburban beer barn kind of places, and yet bands would still still come out of it at the end of it, you know maybe on a hundred dollars a week or whatever the, you know whatever the payment was in those days. Um, so there's, there's there's tons of examples of bands who were on the surface extremely successful that made no money out of it at all. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. Started when I was cleaning dishes 
3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. 
let's let's say we're coming out of the way you make me feel, and I'll, I'll back and answer it, and then maybe ask you a bit about that, and then just just make sure you get that that title right, Kevin, because it's a you're, I think you're referring to a Michael Jackson song. Which, what's the, have, I've, I've, the way the way I made you feel, not the way you make me. Oh, the feel. way I made you feel, right? <laughs> the way I made you feel. I guess you're, you're like one of those people I made... in the audience that I cast scorn upon when they get that title. They request it and they get the title wrong. I get security to throw them out for that kind of thing, Kevin. So just watch it. Do you know? I've, I've, I've never I've never been a lyrics person yet. No, no. For I'm, me, it's all, it's, it's okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Your, you your, your speciality you has always been computer technology. <laughs> Get stuffed. That was most unfortunate. My sleeve chose. <laughs> I've had that sleeve for fifteen years, and it chose that moment. Yeah. Just, just when I'm criticising you about about your technical inabilities to absolutely. Yeah, cover, which is... I know. You're listening to three CR eight five five AM on digital and on the internet. www.3cr.org. So that was uh, the way I made you feel by Ed Cooper, who's our guest this week. Uh, this this song Ed comes from what do we call this? Your middle period, which is uh, after the Laughing Clowns and before your more recent stuff with the Aints. Um, I think was that around the time that you had the Yard Goes On Forever. Uh, the Yard had finished by then. I think what you, how you describe that would be as. Um, getting into the second stage of my third period. Second stage of your third period. I'm pretty sure you played that song when I was working with you, and I was working yes, with you. Yes, when, when, yeah, yeah. yeah we, did. we did. But you hadn't recorded it. It didn't get recorded until a few years later. Oddly enough, um, that that was a relatively reasonable, modest hit for me. Ironically enough, we had been playing that for years, and record company people that I was involved with not one of them picked it. This American that moved to Sydney for a while, a guy called um, Joe Wissett, who was a producer, he'd worked with uh, Helen Reddy, Boz Gags and Earth, Wind and Fire. So he, he came along to one of the shows. He was raving about the song. Ironically enough, no, nobody else had kind of expressed any interest. It, it, was, it was going over really well with audiences. It was sort of unrecorded but very popular live. Um, But, yeah, it didn't get recorded at that stage. Um, So it's after The Yard had broken up and uh, so it's really the second part of the third stage. After The Clowns, that's the third stage essentially. So that breaks up into, you know, a number of different little parts. So uh, let's get back to the topic at hand, which is the working life of a musician. If money was no object, so you can just let your imagination run wild on it, can you see anything that might have helped you in, uh, at any stage of your career, like at the beginning or as you became more established? How could the government potentially sort of support its artists? There are all these skills that you have learned, like you've learned how to negotiate with an industry. Poorly. Poorly, I'd have to say that. <laughs> well, there you go. Like, if money was no object, can you see how we could better support our music industry? Apparently, the the federal government is kind of um, printing up money, and and Treasury is buying government bonds, sort of thing. They are sort of funding their debt. I'm not sure how much 
good they're doing. I, I think it would be a really difficult thing to sell to the voting population that artists should get some kind of preferential treatment. You know, I'm quite in favour of being given preferential treatment, but I doubt if anyone else much would exactly. agree with that. <laughs> but but yeah. too sort of fixated on how much people should be doing. You know, we have, have phenomenal advances in technology. I think we could actually be, you know, reducing the working week for everybody quite significantly and doing away with unemployment entirely. I don't know what the, the figures are, but there are far more people that are unemployed than there are jobs available. Why why should those people be obliged to do anything? If we want a, a civil society and there are no jobs, why waste their time looking for things that don't exist? They could actually be studying, broadening their horizons, that kind of thing. Well, I make music even when I don't make money kind of thing. So I would be doing what I do. And if I had a guaranteed income, that was the same as people down the street who decided they actually don't want to do anything. I wouldn't resent that. I'd be quite okay with that. I'd still be doing what I wanted to do. So that, that you know, is probably like the, the least likely kind of scenario to ever evolve in this country. So I thought I may as well just, you know, go for the top. The reality is that there's a lot of musicians who are on unemployment benefits at the moment, A, because there's not enough work, there's insufficient work available for them, and B, because if they want to advance their career as a musician, it's against their interests to take full-time work in some shitty job that is, is going to interfere with their musical career. It seems to me a wasted resource that you've got people who want to succeed in a musical career but are restricted by punitive obligations in our unemployment system. That's what I was meaning. The whole idea of unemployment benefits seems sort of redundant to me when there aren't enough jobs to actually employ people. Back in the 1930s, you know, when people were sort of being optimistic about the future and the benefits to society that technological advances would sort of bring, you know, they, they were forecasting we would be working 15-hour weeks. If I had a job in an office or something and I was doing 15 hours a week, I think that's all right, you know. You've got time to do other things. But we're not doing that. If you have a job, you're working longer hours... I don't mind working longer hours when I'm doing what I'm doing because it's what I do. But if I was working in some shitty job, I would actually probably re resent it. Yeah, I, I don't know what you call it, you know, an income guarantee or, you know, what what was the – there was a phrase a few years ago, universal base income. On, universal basic yeah. income. There's yeah. a few schools of thought on the effectiveness of a UBI. I know, I know, but – I'm sounding like I actually know what I'm talking about here, but and I don't. But um, there, it it was sort of dismissed a little bit as being a kind of a libertarian approach to social welfare. If you gave everybody uh, universal basic income, that that would undermine the sort of welfare system or something. I, I don't know if that's true, but I, I think the idea of paying everybody a sum of money would actually benefit society. 
Ironically, the current government, which would normally be horrified by what you're saying, is, it do- is doing exactly that to keep the economy flowing. It's very interesting how quickly they adopt socialist principles to protect the capitalist framework when it's not working. This has shown that they can chuck money and make a difference. And people are saying, well, make that difference now. We've got other emergencies. Let's spend some of that money seriously to reorientate the economy for public good and in the public interest, rather than saying, let the market provide. My hope is that they'll be bold with pressure to do things that build a more people-centred and focused future. And, you know, that comes down to us. It comes down to the 3CR listeners, the, the ACF and Friends of the Earth members, the trade unionists. It comes down to everybody that makes a difference and puts in. We need to build on the community that's been developed in the last couple of months and build on some of the smart ideas for a cleaner future. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate... Go to 3cr.org.au. We know that the government has fiscal capacity to spend into the economy. It just has to utilise a resource that's available. And we know that there's a lot of musical resources in the community, artistic resources in the community, which are underutilised. I guess if we're talking about a UBI or a job guarantee, etc., we also then have to redefine uh, work in a lot of cases um, because maybe work is one word, but being useful uh, or contributing to society in some form is is another way of phrasing it. So if you're a musician, then you're working. Uh, that's that's called work because that's what people do. They spend their time doing something useful for a reward that sustains their existence uh, in a community. So with all that UBI and job guarantee stuff, there comes with it a broad redefinition of what work is. Um, I can't help thinking that now would be a great time for government to inject some money into the arts through touring programs to develop some evolving musical acts, musicians, bands, whatever. Uh, And that would yield some excellent social uh, results, but also some uh, very productive economic results by stimulating activity in regional areas. Also kind of would be important, though, that... um governments, once they make that sort of funding available, also then have to step back and not be, you know, uh, kind of sticking their noses. And you, you would not want want sort of the arts sort of directed by any kind of uh, government, state or federally based, you know, it would have to be something. You'd, you'd need, a, you'd need a, a, a political system that I don't think we're any, we, we, we don't have, have the politicians with the imagination or with the courage to kind of see this through. So it is very pie-in-the-sky stuff that we're discussing here. So in answer to your earlier question, you know, if if I just had endless... or might, might have been Anne who asked this question, you know, like if I had endless money, then I would, you know, just become the king and... <laughs> And then, you know, just determine, I'd, I'd turn the place into a, a nice, nice place. But, you know, you know what I mean? It, it, it just seems so, so far-fetched. I, I, I just feel so uh, essentially uninspired by our politicians and the general setup that 
I don't really see anything changing all that much, certainly not in my lifetime. You know, I think at the start of the uh, COVID thing, there was sort of like a number of people that I knew and that my wife Jude knew that were starting to get really optimistic that, oh, this is going to just bring about this, you know, almost utopian-like change. And, you know, it's done nothing of the sort. In fact, it's probably going to be more shithouse afterwards than it was beforehand. This same conversation was had after the GFC, you know, this is going to be the big reset. We're now going to change the way we operate. And sure. it just got worse. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and look look at the last year, you know, like we had uh, this time last year, we had bushfires starting, you know, like... The, worst bushfires that we've had in the country in in recorded history anyway and uh then followed by this you know the the covid thing and and where are we at now you know there's there's they're spending a lot of money they could be spending it productively they could be sort of you know just totally changing the the sort of the the future the way energy is provided, all that kind of thing. They're not doing anything. And there's no, you know, certainly not, there's there's no no strong political movement to shift anything. It's a bit bit sad. Sorry. sorry. (laughs) It's true. I certainly, I agree with you. I wouldn't be looking to certainly not the um, incumbent politicians for any new direction. Um, but I think the ideas are there. There's no shortage of vision and ideas and, in fact, not just technological possibility but financial possibility we know now too. Mm. So like all the pieces are sitting there just waiting to be put into place. So I don't think it is utopian. I think it's, um, well, at least not in terms of um, what's logistically possible. It's just it might be a bit utopian in terms of what's politically possible. It's just that the people yeah. the people who are making decisions aren't speaking to the people who've got the solutions. That's the problem. It's a yeah, there's a big disconnect. I, I think that hmm. you know there'll there'll be like huge huge resistance. You know, I I, I just don't think people uh, have politicians in particular. I don't ever get the sense that they're even sort of open to these ideas. I mean, you know. Why, why, why aren't aren't they more informed? You know, I mean, it, it, you know, because they're not interested. Hi, this is Ed Cooper, and you're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on Three CR with Anne and Kev. Hi, this is Ed Cooper, and you're listening to Anne and Kev on 3CR with their Unemployed Workers Fight Back program. That's my th- 3 triple M version.
This week on Unemployed Workers Fight Back, we're speaking to Ed Cooper. That was the title track from his last offering uh, by his band called The Aints, with an exclamation mark. So, Ed, uh, what can you tell us about this church of simultaneous existence? Well, I did an album a few years ago called Lost Cities, which was sort of, depending how you count my records, was the 50th album, and... uh, announced that this would be the last record that I would do. But then I, as soon as I said that, then I, I thought it would actually be nice to do an orchestral album of material that I'd written when I first started and kind of finish on this sort of fairly romanticised and sentimental, almost like a children's record with this material because I'd done this show a couple of shows with the Queensland Symphony Orchestra and I was really impressed with hearing my, my stuff being played by an orchestra. It was, it was actually quite phenomenal. So I thought this would be a really great way to kind of actually really wrap things up. Then for some reason, the, um, the Aints came I, I can't remember exactly why. I know, I know because my my agent suggested, uh, you know, it's however many decades since your first record. Why don't you do a tour to kind of celebrate it? So I said, yeah, I'll do that. But I've got these songs from that era which were never recorded. They've sort of been going through my head recently. So that's how the record came around. We we just started playing these songs that I'd. I'd written when I was a lot younger, songs that were, you know, written before the Saints had formed, uh, that had been written when the Saints were formed, and a couple of songs that sort of, uh, in that blurry period between the Saints and the Clowns. Okay, I thought there was some some recently written material on there. The newness only came from sort of um, having a lot more experience. I mean, it was... The, the the ideas are all pretty old, actually. Maybe maybe you know, performed a bit better than they might have been back then because I've had a lot of practice since. But that's something which I'd say from it uh, is that listen to the Aints playing. You, you, you're listening to a bunch of musicians. You've got uh, uh, Peter Peter Oxley. You've got Alistair Paul on drums. Everybody's been playing for decades, and 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 yourself. And then to to have that all come together, it was like hearing how the music could have been had everybody had that experience and and you you could because it was happening right in front of you it was um it, it was a, a blast to tell you the truth i love the aints i thought they were great yeah thanks i looked i think it had something magical about it too it was it was in some ways one of the most unlikely musical projects probably ever you know because the original proposal was just basically go out and you know play some old saints songs and uh, just kind of didn't really appeal to me all that much and one of the other things that people kind of forget is that the saints played outside of brisbane we did a number of shows in melbourne and then we were gone and then you know never never to be seen again in the original format kind of thing just struck me that rather than just kind of go out and play you know the handful of songs that people know of you know the early saints to actually kind of do something for the 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 real diehard fans and to kind of make make it seem 
as if it was still a band that was evolving. And so what we did was we we did a tour, and at every show I would introduce one of these new old songs just to see how, how people would respond to them. And uh, the reaction was really great, which is what kind of inspired us to go ahead and uh, do the the album. One really good indication of how well that uh, the new Ain't stuff fits with the old Saint stuff was the gig you did at the Marrickville Bolo. Yeah, which you're going to is going to be presented on YouTube via your your site um, fairly soon, I believe. Actually, tomorrow, tomorrow, Kevin. Tomorrow, crikey! Okay, yes, T- the, tomorrow, uh, Saturday, the Saturday, whichever the day after this day we're, <laughs> we're correct on. the show. <laughs> Of course, yes. it's tomorrow, yes. which is which is excellent. Um, if you watch the the Marrickville show, the first half of the show was uh, all the old Saints material. Then you took a break, which you don't normally do, and the second half of the show was all completely new stuff. It blended perfectly. It's like you can go to these gigs sometimes and you see somebody uh, who had some old hits and they've decided to bring out some new material and there's often a collective groan when the new stuff comes out because everybody was just there for the old hits. But with this show, and I know because I was there doing lights and it was fantastic, the second half kicked harder than the first half. It, It just flew through. Fantastically. Yeah, I I think so too. I think, you know, we weren't able to kind of keep touring as much as I would have wanted to. And then, of course, the, you know, the entire live music scene collapsed anyway. Yeah, I think it was a sort of a a special little moment. I'm dubious about whether things will ever kind of get back to any semblance of regular kind of live gig playing. But uh, no, it was was great. It was, and I'm not, I'm really pleased to have uh, kind of seen that through and to, you know, push against the notion that that we should just be going out playing old Saints songs. Yeah, look, I'd um, I'd recommend anybody who wants to have a look and see uh, how the how the Aints go. Um, you're presenting this uh, the show, the Marrickville Bolo show. Uh, via, I think it's either via Facebook or via YouTube. So if you go to the Aints live at the Marrickville Bolo, either through Facebook, which will then direct you through to the YouTube channel uh you can get to see that entire show from start to finish it was uh it was a cracker i I loved that show and so did everybody else who was there but look um uh, ed and we seem to be running out of time so we've got to um kind of wrap things up i really want to thank you ed for taking the time to come and speak to us especially from the more boring job and economic point of view but it's always fascinating to hear um how people have made their livelihoods and to hear from uh one of australia's great musicians so thanks very much for coming on the show. Good on you, Ed. It's been great talking to you. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you. Okay. Um, well, we need to make room for Mafalda that's uh, coming up next. This uh, episode, as with all our episodes, will be available on podcast. The podcast version of this show is longer. We couldn't fit the whole interview into the show, but the, the podcast will have an extended interview with Ed, with a few more of his opinions on politics and the rest of it. Uh, as per usual, being the Unemployed Workers Fight Back show, check out the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks and we'll be directing the next show, which will be the second Friday of next month, and we'll be back again the fourth Friday after that. See you later. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on 3CR. 
Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne. And I thank you, Kevin. Oh, no, the pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine. You mean all the pleasure was yours? Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. I, oh. I quite enjoyed myself. So if you've got all the pleasure, then what, I had no I had no pleasure? I think we should share the pleasure. <laughs> well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, I, I don't mind you having pleasure. It's great. You have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure. Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that it was pleasurable for you and it was pleasurable for I think we've got a multiplier pleasure here. That means it's doubly pleasurable. So if it was pleasurable for you in the first place, and it was pleasurable for me, it twice as pleasurable as before. That's a good thing. Double the pleasure. Ridden's back.